Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 692 with Mike Zotti. Mike has towering experience when it comes to using data to build and optimize teams and drive engagement. So you'll learn one, what businesses can learn about teams from baseball, two, the top two predictors of team performance, and three, the top three do's and don'ts of effective teaming. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to albums we've referenced, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP692 and check out some of the other cool stuff we've got at awesomeatyourjob.com from the ability to search the full text transcript of everything to the email summaries to the 10-day email course of about winning at work, how to slash unproductive minutes out of there and get home earlier or do more fun work you dig. So a lot of cool stuff at awesomeatyourjob.com and a lot of cool stuff about Mike. Mike Zani is the CEO of The Predictive Index, a talent optimization platform that uses over 60 years of proven science and software to help businesses design high-performing teams and cultures, make objective hiring decisions, and inspire greatness in people. It's over 8,000 clients include Bain Capital, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, DoorDash, Nissan, Omni Hotels, and more. Zani is the co-founder and partner at Phoenix Strategy Investments, a private investment fund. He's an avid sailor and was, in fact, the coach of the 1996 U.S. Olympic sailing team. He's got a bachelor's from Brown and an MBA from Harvard. Big thanks to Mike for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Mike. Mike, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. It's great to be here. I think that's an important task. Got to be awesome at your job. Well, I think so too. And, and, and you've really done some, some homework on, on how that happens. And I'm excited to dig into, into that wisdom with the Predictive Index in your book, The Science of Dream Teams. Uh, but first, let's hear about you coaching the 1996 U.S. Olympic sailing team. How'd that go? That was one of the most, you know, romantic times of of my life where, you know, you're living you're living some bizarre dream with these amazing athletes and, you know, Muhammad Ali lights the torch for the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. I remember that. It was pretty awe-inspiring. And you you get to work with these amazing talents coaching these athletes. But it, I I think it was back then when I started down a people path trying to figure out how to modify myself to get the most out of your athletes because everyone sort of learns differently and you know have different styles and it was you know when to use analogies 
They work great for some people when to be super literal with others who can handle negative feedback, you know, immediately. Some people can't and how to, how to weave come in where it's not quite as negative. It sounds more like growth feedback, but it was, it was that journey with those athletes that I think started me on this path. And I did not know it at the time. That's cool. That's cool. Not that it's all about the gold, but uh, I don't actually recall how the 1996 U.S. Olympic sailing team did. How did we do? We had two medals out of 10 events. It was actually pretty disappointing, unfortunately. Medals are cool, but two is not as many as you were hoping for. It, it, it wasn't. And my, my star athletes of Christina Farrar and Louise Van Voris were in medal contention uh, for nine of the 10 days and finished in fourth, which is a very tough place to finish at the end. Oh, fourth, yeah. I hear you. Well, how'd you cope with that? You know, I, I think it, it's different for the athletes. It, it definitely impacts them in, in different ways. But I saw a lot of athletes who fell short of their goals and they, they never really sailed competitively again. They, they sort of, they were doing it for this, this thing to, to do something as unbelievable as the Olympics. They, they maybe weren't doing it for the love of sailing. And that's probably important to have a love for what you do so that you keep doing it. You know, you see those long distance runners who they may not run competitive marathons anymore, but they still run 50 miles, hundred miles a week because that's what they do. Gotcha. That's cool. That's cool. Well, let's dig into the predictive index. First of all, it's just a great name. I like predictions. I like index and it, it the name itself has a promise within it. What's your organization all about? You know, the predictive index helps companies sort of optimize their talent. We do it with a series of algorithms through assessments, which feed the data model and the software, which gives companies the information they need, you know, pre and post hire, ideally in their time of need. And we, we have about 700 certified partners who work with our clients to take that data from the software and from all of the algorithms and the assessments and, you know, help bring it to life within organizations. And the way I like to say is every CEO has got a strategy, some good, some bad. You know, most have a one to five year financial plan to support that strategy, but, but tragically few of them have a talent strategy. And, you know, strategies do not execute themselves. It's the people who execute them. And it's really surprising. Most people have just boxes in Excel saying, hey, I'm hiring five people in Q1. And there's nothing about what type of people they need and what are the gaps and how are they going to fit on this team and what, how do they change the culture and are they high performers? And what about the ones who are there? How is it going to impact the ones that are already there? And that's what talent optimization does. Mm -hmm. And so what is the, the impact of, of using a, your platform versus just kind of, I guess, winging it or doing what everybody else does? Yeah, I, I think our number one competitor is not some other company. It's people using the old way of doing things. Things like unstructured interviewing with resumes, which are among the greatest fiction in all of business. And, you know, someone walks in and they have a neck tattoo and you just can't get used to that or comfortable with that. So you don't hire them. And you hire people who sort of think the way you think, not, or you, you promote people who think the way you think because you have more comfortable interactions with them as opposed to maybe creating more diverse teams. So I, I think, you know, when, when people aren't doing this 
some people get it right more often than not, but that's not very scalable. You know, there are those gifted talent people who've really invested in their own tools and frameworks. But this is really trying to make sure that you can bring it to every company, you know, sort of a systems approach to how do you hire right? How do you build world-class teams? How do you make sure that the interactions between people are, are really optimized? How do you make sure you have an engaged and high-performing organization? And even with all the tools, because people are messy, we still get it wrong 10, 15, 20% of the time. But it's, it's better than the, the two-thirds of the time that most people get it wrong in doing it the old way. Well, well, those are some interesting, some figures there in terms of, you know, how do we measure, you know, right versus wrong? And, and is, are those figures, you know, fairly accurate in terms of, yeah, you know, without this stuff, you know, you probably expect to uh, be right only a third of the time versus four-fifths of the time you could be right. Yeah, it, I mean, it is hard to do that. Without really great performance analytics, it's, it's hard to take it from the world of qualitative to quantitative. I think we can learn a lot from, from sport. In sports, 30 years ago, they used to do the same thing we did in business. They, you know, recruits, scouts used to go look at recruits in baseball stadiums and look for the five tools of, say, baseball. You know, they're looking at running ability, throwing ability, uh, hitting for power, hitting for average. And they, they would look at these tools and sometimes quantitative, most of the time it was qualitative. And they got it wrong all the time. You know, five out of 100 players recruited made it to the major leagues. And then they adopted Sabre metrics using stats and analytics to predict, you know, part of the name that you like, predictive index. How do you predict who's going to be a higher probability to get to the major leagues and contribute? And not just contribute, it's also contribute for the dollar. Because not every team is the New York Yankees and can spend millions of dollars. It's, it's sort of, you need to have performance for the buck. And, and that attitude that sport took on, starting in baseball, they're 30 years ahead of us in this process in terms of business because they've got great metrics, they've got great performance data. And until you have great metrics and performance data, you're kind of guessing, you know, what was right? Is this a good team for this job to be done? And we're just starting to be able to get there so that you can have a learning machine so that you can hire, promote, manage, craft teams to super high performance and then track that performance. And, you know, we didn't quite get that right. That was a good team, but not a great team. Let's, let's keep working on that. That's cool. Well, so you're, you're summarizing a lot of your wisdom over the years in your book, The Science of Dream Teams. It sounds like we've covered it here, but, but what's sort of the big idea? Is that it, it's all about using science and data to, to engineer dream teams? Or, or how would you summarize your core thesis? I think it's, 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 a, it's a journey on, on, on yourself. You know, there's, there's, a, there's really a call to action for each person who manages people. And I don't just mean managing down. I mean managing across and managing up. That you have to adopt this discipline to have great relationships. And it, it actually starts with yourself. You have to know yourself, be, be self-aware, know the things you're, you're good at, and try and play the game on those terms. But also, just as clearly, know the stuff that you're, you're not good at and make sure you understand those triggers. I think once you become that self-aware leader, you can really start attracting talent to you. And even if you're an individual contributor, the best managers want you on their team. And you can then do that. You've got a culture of performance. You've got a culture of you know, being engaged. 
you're one of those people who always add value when you're around your team and you can go on this journey. And I, I think the book is really a call to action to change the discipline, to take it out of the old way of subjective, qualitative, and bring it into a newer way where you can start bringing data to the equation. And we're really in the early steps of this. You know, the, the, the data is just starting to come on and we're just starting to create these learning machines and prediction so that you can articulate whether you're going to be a good fit for XYZ role on this team doing this strategy. And it's great because it's, it's tantalizingly close and a lot of companies are getting there. Mm-hmm. Well, so can you walk us through it in practice? Like we're thinking, okay, uh, we got a role, we got a candidate or maybe you have many candidates, <laughs> how do we choose? You know, what are sort of like the, the step-by-step here? Let me give you an example. I, I know that you're a former consultant, you know, high-end consulting firm. Am I allowed to mention the name? Oh, sure. I, I, I've, I've mentioned it too many times for some of our listeners, according to the survey. So sorry about that, guys. <laughs> okay, so something, so, so Bain & Company. At Bain & Company, you are constantly reassembling teams into work groups based on and engagement. You know, you might have one partner on the project, a couple of managers, you know, half a dozen, dozen consultants and associates, and you're constantly reassembling these teams every few months, depending on the work. And what you're trying to do is determine what is the work that needs to be done on this engagement? And then is this team a good fit for that work? So in order to do that, we've mapped behavioral analytics, psychometric tools to strategy. So that let's just say you're on that 10 person team. We'll call it a 10 person team. And you can look at that team. Are we homogenous behaviorally or are we heterogeneous behaviorally? If so, what gaps do we have? Where are we homogenous? And then we can actually find out, are we aligned on our strategy? You know, what is our strategy? Are we aligned on it? And is that team as a set currently assembled a good fit? Maybe it's mm, an okay fit. And then you're like, well, what are the gaps? Okay, there's a couple of gaps. Can we stretch to get there? Is it an easy stretch? Is it a hard stretch? Can we augment this team with some other things? Can we actually change out a few players? And the reason I'm picking your consulting team, because changing out a player on a consulting team, they just go to another engagement. It's not they're getting fired. And it's, it's in these reassembling teams that you can create super teams for the work to be done because a team is not inherently good or bad, but they might be a good or bad fit. And I, I use an example. If I took the senior team for Mass General Hospital, center of excellence hospital in Boston, heavy research, you know, they've got some of the best doctors, some of the best research, tons of money, and they're near the cutting edge, but they also have the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. So they're inherently risk intolerant. They are not going to be a good team to do a startup. And they wouldn't be a good team if a private equity firm like Bain Capital bought Mass General. We're going to do a roll up of every center of excellence in every major city. The senior team that might have been great at running a single center of excellence is not going to be the team to run that roll up for, you know, the private equity firm trying to put together you know, a, a massive organization because they're not going to have the risk tolerance. They're not the right team for that job. So it's like assemble the team to do the work that they're supposed to do and unlock that potential 
and find out when there are gaps. If the strategy changes, you're like, we may need to stretch, add someone, take someone away. Mm-hmm. Well, so when we talk about the fit, I'm thinking that be, <laughs> I've been playing some Tetris lately. Uh, so I see that in my mind's eye. So we've got what is demanded of the team. Certain things are necessary. And then we've got what the individual teammates are, are bringing to the table. But how do we break down the whole universe of work into a manageable set of, is it parameters or competencies? I'm thinking about the corn fairy lists right now. How do you break it down? Like how many like parameters or drivers or factors are, are we looking at and, and how do we measure folks on them? The, I mean, there are numerous parameters you could measure and corn fairies competencies are a good form of measurement. You know, you've got these frameworks and says, what are the skills? What are the competencies needed? But more than skills and competencies, one level higher in prediction, the number one predictor of workplace performance is cognitive fit for a role, making sure the person has the cognitive capabilities, the, the learning capacity, the ability to manage complexity to deal with the, the requirements of that role. Well, I guess with cognitive fit, what is it they called it? G, general intelligence. I, I mean, are there sort of multiple flavors of, of cognitive fit or is it all just sort of like raw smarts that's going to show up like on the GRE um, type cognitive stuff? Actually, you bring up a really important element of cognitive you know, science that if you, if you do a short format test, you know, like a 12 minute assessment, you can see the sub facets of cognitive, you know, sort of linguistic, mathematical, spatial, you know, abstract reasoning, but you have to take a longer format cognitive assessment to be able to have high degrees of validity that those sub facets, you know, the importance, but in, in an ideal world, if you had the time, and not every, not every organization wants to have their people take a 90-minute cognitive assessment. It might be too much load. But you would have diverse teams that, let's just say, you're amazing mathematically, but I'm, I'm really good spatially. And we, we'd be a great match. And then when we're going to publish our findings, we're like, well, who's the person really good linguistically who can write this stuff really well? And putting to, together diverse cognitive teams. And you might even have people who have gaps. And the beautiful part, if you, if you look at the sub-facets, language is the biggest bias in cognitive-based assessments because it picks up socioeconomics, uh, especially in the United States. And it's a testament of our education systems. But lower socioeconomic categories do worse in cognitive, especially in the verbal part. And that, that picks up race and ethnicity in, in the U.S., which uh, needs to be corrected for. So you cannot use cognitive as, as a single variable disqualifier for a role. Or you will create bias on unfortunate planes like race and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we, we want to make sure they've got the, the cognitive stuff. It's like you, your brain can handle what's going to be thrown at it. And so we might get a quick view in 12 minutes versus 90 minutes. By the way, what are these tools we're using to assess it in 12 minutes and 90 minutes? I mean, there's thousands of cognitive assessments. You know, ours happens to be a short format that is used, you know, whether you're a Subway sandwich artist or whether you're the, you know, a PhD in biotech for, you know, Moderna. 
and and actually it's important because say you are a sub subway franchisee you're hiring temp workers mostly high school and college kids for the summer to be sandwich artists and i mean the cognitive requirements for that role are not massively high but if you have a choice you want the higher end of the range because you are teaching them how to bake bread how to make sandwiches rules and processes maybe it's procedures for like a pandemic where you have sanitation requirements but you don't need the same cognitive requirements of of the phd running a biotech firm that's legitimate you need someone with cognitive requirements that are probably in the top decile and you're building those teams and this is no different than hey this person's fast you're like they're fast for a linebacker but they're not fast for you know a wide receiver um you have different requirements for the role Okay. And I'm curious, can, can you have too much of a good thing in terms of if your sandwich artist has too much cognitive power, are they going to be bored and say, this, this job is lame and I'm out of here and, and, and bounce kind of quickly? Or, or is your view like, hey, the more the better? Actually, um, there was a famous lawsuit with a detective agency where they disqualified a candidate to be a detective for ha- because of too high of a cognitive. And it went to this, I think the state Supreme Court And the police department was saying, hey, it takes like three years to make a good detective. You know, there's a lot of learning. And the job is not as exciting as it is on TV. You know, it's actually a a pretty mundane, boring job, high repetition. And they're like, what we found is that the high cognitive people get frustrated at the pace and challenge of this job and move on. So we don't want to train you for three years for you to leave and not be a productive asset, if you will. And uh, so it's interesting. This actual scientific data does not say you can have too high a cognitive that your performance goes down, but the curve flattens. So it's not like if you're three times as smart, if you're 99.9 percentile versus 92, it's going to be so indiscernibly different that it's other factors that are predicting success. So it does it does flatten out. Sure thing. And, and so then I guess it's, it's really down to personal prep. Well, first of all, what happened with the Illinois Supreme Court or the Illinois, the state Supreme Court case? Uh, how do they rule? Oh, you have to read it in the book. Okay. <laughs> I'm okay. Kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> no, the, the, the police department was exonerated. You know, they had a process. They were looking at the data and they said, in our estimation, people with, with, this, with this criteria will churn more and we have a high cost of training. Okay, so so that can happen, and and so in, and so generally, it seems like more is better. But if it's oodles and oodles more, you you might have a, a different problem to contend with, in terms of, of churn rate as opposed to performance. So that's the the number one predictor is is the cognitive fit. Do they got the the, the mental horsepower to to get her done? And you're about to tell us number two, but then we went deep. I think it, it's 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 behavioral fit, and some jobs have very tight criteria. You think of sales, you know, the the sales role, highly predictive, high dominance, low patience, great risk tolerance is highly predictive of sales success. And what's interesting, there are subclasses of sales. You might have collaborative sales for big enterprises where one person is starting the sale process, but you're bringing in several other people to support it. You know, like there might be sales engineering, there might be a customer service team that comes in and that person's going to need more collaboration and, and, and more people skills to do that quarterbacking. There could be highly technical sales, which, you know, if you're selling data security 
you know, cutting edge data security into the C-suite CIO and the tech teams and the really like brainiacs on the other side who are all introverted, you're going to want a very introverted, highly technical, you know, high detail oriented, high formality sales process. So there's some facets, but then there are some roles like product that are completely open behaviorally. You can have, you know, success in, in, in product development with almost any behavioral profile, but you, you would, then you want to look at not the, not the fit for the role. You want to look at fit for the team. Because if you already have eight people on this team and they, they, maybe they're all one profile, you don't want more of that. You want, you want some diversity. Or the manager of that team might be like, I've already got two of those. I can't handle a third. They're good, but they're a real handful with my personality and I'm the manager of the team. So you start crafting and architecting. But the, the short story is some positions are really open from a behavioral benchmark and some are much tighter. And we, we provide companies tools so that they can actually create those benchmarks as well as we feed them from our data stores. We feed them suggestions. For roles like this, we suggest these behavioral profiles, but then we let them refine it for their companies. Mm-hmm. And just as we sort of segmented cognitive fit into the, the four subfacets, when you talk about a behavioral profile, what are the ingredients or subfacets that we could characterize people on as being high or low and that really matter? I mean, each tool is different. Uh, our, our tool measures four primary factors that are commonly found in the workplace. You know, dominance, extroversion, patience, and formality. And we measure it in high or low on a, on a normalized bell curve. You know, so there's someone who could be four standard deviations, high dominance. And while you might want high dominance, you may not want that much. And then we actually measure combinations of those factors. So high dominance and low formality make you very risk tolerant, whereas high formality and low dominance makes you highly execution oriented and risk intolerant. So it's, it's not just the, the four factors that you measure, but the interplay between them that's really important. Well, boy, this is fascinating. And um, so a lot, of, a lot of juicy conceptual stuff to, to ponder. I'd love it if we could maybe shift gears a bit, Mike, and, and hear some just boom, best practices, whether, whether someone's going to, to go deep into these fun assessments or they're not. What are the things that professionals need to um, start doing and stop doing to have more dream teams according to science? I think the number one thing that people need to stop doing is overweighting their own opinion. (laughs) Human beings are so good at heuristics. So you can see a dog and within milliseconds know, is this the type of dog that I wanna pet? Or is this the type of dog that I wanna pull my hands back and I'm concerned to even the point of, is this a dog that I should be running from. So we're good at that heuristics and false negatives or false positives happen all the time. We're, we're actually, we're good at the heuristics, but our, our rates of being right and wrong are, are really bad, about 50%. But if you run from a dog you shouldn't have, then you just look silly, but you're still safe. So it's a, it's a, it's a good thing and we've evolved it through evolution. But those same heuristics will say, is, is Pete giving me eye contact? I, I don't, he looks kind of shifty, you know, and, and that's a false read. 
maybe when Pete's thinking, he's introverted and looks to the side. That doesn't mean it's it's good or bad. So people bring all of these conscious and unconscious bias to bear. And then, like driving, if you interview drivers, 90% of people think they're above average at driving, which is impossible. I think the same holds true. 90% of people think they're a good read of people. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm a good read. I would not hire this person. This is not a good idea. And they're, they're wrong. And they have these biases. And first and foremost, we need to get rid of that. And if, if you don't get rid of that, you're going to continue doing it in the third of the time getting it right. I think the next thing people need to get rid of is the over-reliance on what we call the briefcase, which is the resume. There's the head, the heart, and the briefcase. And, and the, the briefcase is the book of experience you've had. And you're like, you know, Pete, you've, you've had three great jobs in customer service. You've had it at companies a lot like ours. And you've kept going up the line from individual contributor to manager to director. We want you to be the senior director of customer service at our firm. And that makes sense and sounds good. But teaching someone customer service, literally, if you break it down, takes a month. And, and finding out if someone's a good manager has really nothing to do with their resume. So you, you can throw out a lot of, a lot of that resume because it, it's a false reliance. You're going, oh, this person must be great at customer service. And there are roles that you need a lot of experience. You know, I want my surgeon to have done this surgery a few times before, but there are most of the roles in business are not mission critical like surgeon. You can train this and, and companies underinvest in their, in their learning and development so that you can hire thinner resumes and train, but don't shortchange the behavior, the cognitive and the passion, the heart, making sure they're a good fit for your organization and they have the type of cultural qualitative stuff that you that will succeed in your organization that gets them up in the morning. I'm intrigued by, so we, we talked about the, the cognitive or the behavioral, and, and so we got assessments for that. How do I get after whether they got the heart? It's difficult. Those tests are really hard to do predictably. I want to pick on grit. I think grit is an amazingly cool sort of metric to try and get your arms around. So Angela Duckworth wrote the book, Grit. And, um, you know, I, I, I got to ask Angela, how do you measure grit in mission critical situations? And she goes, it's very difficult because the test is easy to game. You ask questions like when faced with a challenge, do you roll into the fetal position or do you Never. assault the hill? <laughs> you know, and you're like, hmm, I normally roll in the fetal position, but I don't want to tell you that. So I'm going to check the climb the mountain. Now, there are ways to test for grit. If you look at the army and boot camp, you take these rookies through boot camp and it's really hard to fake boot camp for whatever it is 12 weeks so at the end of boot camp they know they're like this batch of people has a lot of grit these middle these not so much but most people don't have 12 weeks and a boot camp to measure that that factor but we coach people to have structured interview processes around their culture so you're trying to get people to test themselves in or out of the culture that if I realize that, say I'm running a nonprofit mission-driven organization, and in speaking with you, I'm realizing, Pete, you seem pretty financially motivated. Cash is king, Mike. <laughs> I'm like, we do not pay top 50%. And I'm like, if you're not connected to this mission, you're not going to make it here because you're going to want to make money and have promotions beyond what social enterprise is, is willing to do at this time. 
So, you know, you need to really send like a beacon, your culture, your cultural mores, your way of working and get people to be like, I really want to be part of it or that scares me. I don't want to be at all part of this. And people can start self-selecting in or out, but you really need to broadcast loudly and have some structured interviewing to help find out what's in heart. And it's still difficult. It's easier with internal hires than with, with, you know, fresh material from the outside world. Yeah. Well, that's handy. Well, we'll lay it on us. Any other quick do's and don'ts that we should keep in mind for getting more dream teams going? Yeah, I, I, I really think you need to train your managers to be good managers. I think the management construct is, is a little flawed. So if you're, if you're a good performer, individual contributor, they start giving you resources. You know, you'll, you, you, you manage a process at first and you hold people accountable to that process. You might manage a project and then you do a good job and they give you more resources. And soon you have people reporting to you and, and, and a little budget. And then you, you wake up in the morning going, gosh, I got to manage my people. How do I do that? So you look back and you say, oh, I had a good manager once. I'm going to manage like them. And that just means that that manager managed you the way you wanted to be managed. And that's why you thought they were good. And we need to teach managers to modify themselves, to be flexible and pliable in their, in their styles so they can actually get the most out of their people. And I go back all the way to the first comment about the Olympics when even as a coach, even as a teacher, you need to modify yourself to get the most out of your out of your people. And I think when a manager realizes their job is to leverage their skills to get the most out of their people, that is what managers should do. That we we have to reinvest in the in the development of our management core so they really can be world-class managers of people so they can get the most out of their dream teams. All right. Cool. Well, Mike, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. <laughs> no, I would say uh, if you are unhappy with how stuff is being done, talent is being managed in your organization, look at your organization and find out, does the head of talent, whatever they're called, chief people officer, chief human resources officer, are they reporting directly to the CEO or not? I think that is the number one predictor of whether a company takes talent seriously. Because if you think the two most important assets in a modern business, first people, 65% of an income statement of your expenses is people or people related. So the new triumvirate, it's the CEO, the CFO, and the chief people officer. And that chief people officer better be reporting to the CEO because why wouldn't the most important asset, 65% of your expenses, be reporting to the chief executive officer. So you can, you can find out whether your organization has taken this seriously. All right, thank you. Now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Sir Francis Drake wrote this uh, when he had to tell his crew they were sailing around the world. And the only one who ever done that, had done that before was Magellan, and most of them died. I'm not gonna quote the whole poem or prayer, but he, he does say, you know, where the storms will show your mastery. And, and I, I, I always hang on to that, because I think when when things really start going sideways, like the beginning of the pandemic, that you have to dig deep for the whole team, the entirety, like the storm is gonna show our mastery and we're gonna get through this and we're gonna prove that all the work and all the talent that we have comes to bear right now. Mm-hmm. And a favorite book? You know, I'm gonna go back to the goal. Oh yeah. The reason I like the goal is once you learn that concept of 
looking for you know the bottleneck in everything you do. If you take a systems or operations approach, you actually see it everywhere. You know, I see it with my kids. I'm like, I need more socks. I'm like, no, you don't. You need to wash your socks more. You know, <laughs> I, I love the goal. I have two boys. We have a lot of sock problems. <laughs> That's good. And uh, a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate. It gets quoted back to you often. There's this concept that I mentioned in the book, and you may know the the framework creator, Jim Allen, he's a partner in the UK office of Bain, uh, came up with front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt. Front of t-shirt is all the things that you've been given jobs for, you know, your superlatives, you know, you puff up your chest when you hear them and your, your mom would probably rattle them off. The back of t-shirt stuff is not as easily identifiable for the wearer of the shirt, but the, but people who know the subject know the back of t-shirt. It can say it just as loudly as the the front, but only when they walk away from it because it's inappropriate to say it. So the really self-aware person looking for what's on the back of your t-shirt, finding out these things that can manifest themselves at bad times and take you out. And the reason Jim Allen brought this up is if if you're about to become a partner at a major consulting firm, the front of t-shirt's clear. You wouldn't be there if you didn't have a massive front of t-shirt, but it's are there things on the back that are so out of control or egregious or triggered so frequently that we just can't let you get to that next tenure level? And this, this framework has a lot of legs and it's in the book. I mentioned it. I give Jim Allen credit, you know, as often as I possibly can. But a lot of people really glom onto that because going on a journey to find out what's in your t-shirt, what's on the front, what's in the back, what are the triggers, how do they take me out and how do I... How do I live with it? Because you're never going to get rid of these things. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? For the book, I would, I would point them to dreamteams.io. That's the book's website. And you can take some free assessments there and read a sample chapter. You know, for more about the Predictive Index, uh, predictiveindex.com. There's a, a lot of content on talent optimization, all free, that you can really start snacking on to, to start learning about this discipline change that we all need to go through. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. If create better workplaces, I think if we send home our workers more energized because they enjoy what they do, we're going to create a better world. We're going to create better parents, spouses, homeschooling individuals, community members. So create better workplaces. We spend too much time working there to let people go home de-energized and unhappy. All right. Well, Mike, this has been a treat. Thank you. And and I wish you much luck to be on many dream teams in your future. Pete, thank you for having me. And I really appreciate the work that you do. I really appreciated Mike's point about not over indexing or over appreciating, overvaluing your own opinion. And, um, it's sort of funny because that's kind of human nature. It's like, no, this is my position. This is my point of view. And I'm just sort of naturally going to, I guess, argue for that. But really, I think as we've had other guests talk about intuition, like, yeah, that's valuable. There's stuff that is, is giving you some signals, maybe subconsciously from your experience, your gut. There is something to that, that it, it ought not to be devalued entirely. And yet we are also full of our our biases and our experiences, which may not be representative of the thing that we are are looking at. And and to just know that frequently we make 
mistakes and decision making frequently, especially with with hiring, if we rely too much on our opinion and gut feel. So, so that's been helpful for me is just to, to be able to hold my opinion all the more loosely in terms of, hmm, this is kind of how I'm feeling going into this and my my current vibe noted, you know, that is a piece of input I'm going to consider, but it is not like the dominant one that needs to, to reign supreme. So, so thanks for, for that reinforcement, Mike, much appreciated. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP692. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, Check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.